What's up, everybody? Ben back here from the Spotlight, part of the Next Level Podcast Network, and my guest this time around is actor D.B. Sweeney. If you've seen, you'd know him from movies like The Cutting Edge, uh, Fire in the Sky, miniseries Lonesome Dove, television appearances like House, Two and a Half Men. Uh, you've seen his face. You've heard his voice. Trust me. Uh, D.B. was an amazing guest this week. I am so anxious to get this one out to you. You have no idea, and I'm glad I finally did, and you're you're getting to listen to it now. Uh, right now, DB has a short out on YouTube <clears throat> and on Facebook uh, called Too Dumb Mix that he does with Sean Astin, and believe me, it is absolutely hysterical. It is just, it's very Abbott and Costello-like, gave me belly laughs, it's amazing. Just go to facebook.com slash 2dumbmix, that's dumb without the B, so D-U-M, uh, or www.2dumbmix.com, spelled the same way, and check it out. DB and I have an amazing conversation about, uh, you know, the movies that he's done, like The Cutting Edge, Fire in the Sky, as I mentioned earlier, talking, we, we kind of, we, we bro out about hockey a little bit and our favorite teams and things like that. Talk about the pandemic, obviously, that's going on right now and what it could mean to the entertainment industry. But man, I, I cannot emphasize enough how awesome DB was to talk to. Uh, I'm so glad. Special thanks to Steve Cooper for getting this one set up for us. Um, for me, rather, and getting us connected because we are definitely going to connect in the future. And DB is very open and very anxious to return to the the podcast in the future to promote to promote some uh, some new projects he's got coming out. So, <clears throat> as always, be sure you are subscribed to us on social media at the Spotlight NXT on both Instagram and Twitter. Follow us follow us on Facebook if you don't already. Facebook.com slash the Spotlight NXT, and of course check out all of the other podcasts part of the Next Level Podcast Network at thenextlevelnetwork.com. But I'm not going to take up any more of your time. Relax. Enjoy this awesome conversation with actor D.B. Sweeney. It's the next level. Hey, this is Lucky Yates. Hey there, this is Jimmy Simpson. Hello, this is Brad Sherwood. Hi, this is Claire Coffey. This is Andy Daly. Hey there, this is Kevin Duran. Hi, I'm Chris Parnell. Hey, this is DJ Sign. Hey all, this is David Hoffman. You are listening to Level Have Fun. My guest in the spotlight today is an actor who, let's face it, his resume is so large that if you've watched television or movies any time in the past 20, 30 years, you've seen his face, you've heard his voice. Uh, you'd know him from shows like Jericho, House, Two and a Half Men, movies like Fire in the Sky, The Cutting Edge. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. Please welcome uh, Mr. D.B. Sweeney. Oh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to it. We had a, uh, a mutual friend who, uh, who kind of hooked this up for us, and I was excited. Well, it's, it's great to get on, and, and uh, you know, the only, I, I, I know you're, uh, you're in Pennsylvania, and uh, I have a big soft spot in my heart for that. Uh, that's the place where my movie, Two Tickets to Paradise, uh, the story originates, and uh, so I've spent a lot of time there. I have cousins there, and, uh, you know, I, 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 my heart goes out to them during this quarantine and at all times. Yeah, you know, it's 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 funny that you bring that up. Well, it's not funny because it's an unfortunate time that we're in right now, but it's it seems like ever since I started this new season of my podcast a couple episodes ago, 
that it's it's unfortunately becoming the new norm that one of the first questions I ask is how are you holding up during these you know this stay at home and social distancing because it's everywhere. Yeah, it's you know it's obviously a weird time for everybody, but I think it's a great time in in a certain sense. And uh, I've got two teenagers, one 18 years old, a senior, and then one who just turned 16 this last week. And uh, my son has graduated and he's going off to college. And during this period. You know, he's in the second semester of his senior year. I probably never would have seen him. You know, yeah. he'd be out with his friends. And so now having him at home has, has been kind of a, you know, a, a bonus, a blessing. You know, we've gotten to spend this extra time with him before the next part of our life starts where he goes off to college. And, of course, we expect to see him in the summers and vacations and stuff. But, you know, it's it's the end of an era when your kid goes away. So it's that's been a great bonus for us. My daughter... um, having her around even more that's been great too so it's really drawn our family even closer together and we've had a lot we try to eat dinner together you know at least two three nights a week under normal circumstances but with hockey and soccer and activities it doesn't always happen so now we're having dinner together almost every single night unless somebody just doesn't feel like eating so it's been you know that that's the, the bright side and and uh you know i've been trying to focus on that yeah, it's it's been kind of a little bit of a double-edged sword. I mean, you know, there's the unfortunate part of it that schools in some areas, especially here, as you mentioned, in Pennsylvania, you know, schools already ending for the year, well, much earlier than they should have, people not being able to go to work. But as you mentioned, more people being home together, families getting to spend more time together, and there has absolutely been a a boom in creativity, at least from what I've seen uh, online, you know, you know, you look at shows like Saturday Night Live, who are just finding new and innovative, innovative ways to still do their show with everybody from home. Uh, you know, and as well as like John Krasinski doing things on YouTube and things like that. So it's yeah, it's you're right. It's there are some positives that have come out of it, which is good. Yes, yeah, I think it's definitely going to be one of those situations. Like uh, you know, 20 years ago, I think you know, travel for Americans and really around the world was forever changed after 9-11. So we used to talk about before 9-11 and after 9-11. I think we'll certainly uh, talk that same way about, you know, before the uh, before the virus, uh, you know, we did these things. I, I don't know that we're going to shake hands as much as we used to. I, I don't know that we're going to ever go to movie theaters again. I mean, I, you know, there's certain things that are just going to change forever. I think uh, um, DoorDash and those kind of companies, I think they're all going to go out of business or, or transform because, you know, we really want more security that that people that were safe, healthy, you know, and, and people touching our food, like somebody handing your food at McDonald's to some stranger in their car and that person bringing it to your house. That doesn't feel to me like a, a very safe way to, 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 you know, get your food brought to you. So, you know, I mean, I'm just speculating on that particular company. I'm nothing against them, but I think that we're all going to sort of look at, you know, how we, how we buy products, how we receive our food, how we interact socially, all those things are going to change in a way that there was, before the virus and after the virus. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree with, with a lot of what you're saying. It, it, it's, I don't think it's going to – I think life as we knew was the norm before this is, is absolutely going to be different when it resumes, uh, whenever that is. I mean, because we don't know at this point. So, But let's uh, – Yeah. I'm, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, after you. I, I was just going to say let's let's get away from that. Let's get away from that because okay, I know, yeah. you know, for some people it's kind of a depressing topic and uh, – I don't yeah, want to, yeah. I don't want to depress our audience before we uh we get into it. So, uh, you know, I, you know, as a podcaster, I've talked to an, over uh, you know, 100 200 people in the entertainment industry from, you know, people who are established to people who are up and comers and I always try to do as much prep work as I can. But with you 
and I, I want you to take this as a compliment because it's not a a, uh, a complaint in any way. My prep work for you seemed to be very difficult because there's so much to talk about when it comes to your career. Um, so this is an interview. This is a conversation with you. I'm kind of treating as in like I have a couple things I want to bring up. But for the most part, we're just going to shoot the shit and just see where this conversation takes us. That sounds great. So, uh, you know, it, um, I have a, a bit of a confession to make. I'm going to start with, obviously, the big elephant in the room when it comes to your career, at least when it comes to my audience, and that's the cutting edge. Uh, you know, when I posted that I was talking to you, that was the overwhelming response of people commenting of how much, to this day, they still love that movie. And it, it's uh, it's it's really been a great blessing in my life. And, and uh, Tony Gilroy, the writer, uh, obviously, he's become Tony Gilroy of Born Identity and, and uh, Michael Collins and Dolores Claiborne. And he's also one of the great script doctors in Hollywood. Now, most people, you know, he'd be on any list of the top two or three screenwriters in Hollywood. But a lot of people out there don't know his name because he doesn't really promote himself the way other filmmakers do. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was just great. And this is his first film. This is the first produced screenplay. So it was great to get get in on the ground floor with Tony and just get to know him. And and then when they brought in Moira Kelly to play opposite me and Terry O'Quinn and Roy Detrice, and I just you could tell that it was something really special while we were doing it. And uh, I'm just I'm just really it's a you know it's a it's a great thing in my life that I have this movie that makes so many people happy. So I've given up on being frustrated that that's the one that people point to when I feel like <laughs> I have a lot of other stuff too. Yeah, I mean, because it's uh, and my, now my confession to you is I'm a huge cinephile. I love movies, whether it's you know older, you know classic films to the modern stuff that comes out in theaters now. Uh, my first time viewing The Cutting Edge was this morning. I have never oh, seen wow. it. I have never seen it before, and uh, you know, as, as part of my uh, my preparation for talking to you, I wanted to see it because all these people posting about how much they loved it, and you know, I was like, okay. I, I have a feeling I pr- I should, at least the cinephile in me should see this movie because I've known about it all my life or for most of my life I just have never watched it and I gotta tell you I really this is not me blowing smoke at all I really enjoyed it I thought it was a lot of fun. Oh thanks yeah it's it's a good hearted movie and uh, you know it's it's sexy without being you know make you uncomfortable if you watch it with your mom or your daughter or something. And, <laughs> yeah. and uh, it doesn't really have that much. It's got a couple of foul, you know, bad words, but it, it's pretty much an old school Hollywood movie where, you know, you, you can watch it with an audience of anybody from eight to 80 and, and uh, anybody with their friends, strangers, first date, whatever. So, so that kind of thing was, is really unusual. And I, I feel like it, 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 it adheres to a lot of the rules of classic storytelling and that's why it works. And again, Maura Kelly is just, so good in her role that you know she makes the movie so it's it's it was really a great thing in my life and i've continued to to benefit from it in terms of you know recognition and people feeling good about it and feeling good about subsequent things that i've done because you know sometimes if you're in a movie people love and you're in a movie they don't love they cut your break because you were in the other movie they loved yeah yeah exactly i mean and it's and it's a movie too that uh, has continuously put off uh, more iterations and spin-offs uh, from it too. So it's a story that obviously people definitely, uh, you know, were attracted to and they just like retelling in new ways. Uh, at any point, were you ever approached to be a part of any of the, the continuation or the spinoffs or sequels? Yeah, yeah. Moira and I became very good friends during the filming. We trained together. We both learned to skate together. We spent three months going to this rink in New York City called Sky Rink, which is on Ninth Avenue. And it's, as the name suggests, it's in the air. It's on like the eighth or ninth floor. It doesn't exist anymore. But at that time it was there. 
and I was living in the city and she was living on Long Island where we're both from and she would come in on the train and we'd skate together every day. And we just, we knew the movie we were doing. We knew the relationship we were going to film and what an incredible uh, rehearsal process to be able to learn the, the central skill of the characters together, mm-hmm. go to the rink together, have lunch together. And, you know, we just, we started teasing each other about things the way the characters do. And so by the time we got to Toronto to film the movie, it was, you know, we were sort of in character in the best possible way. And uh, it, it just, it's been a great thing. I play hockey ever since then. And, and uh, it's just, it's such a, such a great part of my life. My son has played hockey since he was three years old and uh, I love watching his game. So uh, the whole figure skating world is, is, is something I didn't know anything about. And now, you know, I have friends from Scott Hamilton, Chrissy Yamaguchi, you know, there's people that I know now that I never would have known. And uh, it's, you know, it's just been a, been a great thing. As far as the sequels go, Moira and I made a bond. Uh, we made a pact during the filming that we would never do a sequel. We thought it was going to work. And we said, we're not doing a sequel without the other one. Like if they offered more a lot of money and not, so we made that pact and they made it real easy for us on the first sequel. They came back and they said, you know, this, at this point the movie had blown up and everybody had seen it. And, and uh, so they offered us each $25,000 for three days work, like almost a glorified cameo and yeah. then try to remake the movie with two younger people. And I was like, well, why would we do that? That's so dumb. That's like we, you know, you don't you don't do sequels for like less money than you got on the first one, and it should have been about our characters again. And you know, we I, at one point they asked me to write a script, uh, a treatment, and I did. I wrote ten page treatment, and Robert Court, the producer of the movie, loved it. And MGM didn't want to spend any money. They just they felt like uh, they had had that they got lucky on the first one, and that they weren't going to you know put in money to make a significant you know quality sequel. And Tony Gilroy wasn't a part of it because he wanted to get paid. And, you know, so it was really easy for us to say no. And then they started just making cheaper and cheaper sequels. And I, I honestly, I've never seen any of them, but I know that they're out there. And uh, maybe someday they'll they'll come back and say, hey, we want to do a proper sequel where obviously now Moira and I would be the parents or something. So, but, then, you know, the, the characters are still there and I think people would still respond to it. So I think she would do it. I know I would do it. That was actually something I was going to ask, too. I mean, because we're in a time period now with a resurgence of reboots and 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 such yeah you know we have things like the mighty ducks and honey i shrunk the kids and things like that that are coming back and uh, that's good to know that if they ever did decide that they were going to do a cutting edge sequel like a proper sequel as you mentioned that we would see you and moira come back for the part because I, I i would love to see that and i'm sure a lot of people would love to see that yeah it would have a different thing i mean maybe Moira and i got married and then separated or something like that and then we fall in love again or yeah. something you know like like there's so many and then there could be younger characters you know so that it's obviously a brand name that would be uh, it wouldn't be stupid to do it i just don't know if mgm has the wherewithal or the smarts to uh you know to come up with it it's just it's not the ball's out of my court because i don't control any of it but uh you know i continue to be proud of the original yeah were you a were you a skater before the movie or was that your first introduction to learning how to skate no, I, I couldn't skate. And, you know, I mean, I grew up on Long Island where, uh, you know, the, the the winters weren't really cold enough for the, the ponds to consistently freeze outside. Mm-hmm. So hockey, where where I was, was it was an inside sport. And it wasn't, you know, this is the pre-Gretzky era. There weren't rinks everywhere, you know, the way there are now. And I remember the, the rink was 45 minutes from our house. My dad got one look at the price of hockey skates, and he was like, we're going to stick with uh, basketball and baseball. And so uh, <laughs> that became more my, my destiny to – play the cheaper sports that, you know, I mean, there's a reason why soccer is the most popular sport around the world. You just need one ball and 25 people, 22 people get to play. So yeah, no pads you know, or hockey, helmets or anything uh, like that. 
Yeah, there's nothing. And baseball, you know, you, you can play without gloves, but everybody has their own glove and you need a couple of balls. You know, so they're obviously much cheaper sports. And those are the ones I played. And I, I love those sports very much, but uh, I wish I had played hockey growing up. Yeah, uh, it, it's good to hear that you're playing it now. I got to ask, because I'm a huge hockey fan myself. Who are you? Uh, who are you a fan of? I want I want to guess before you say I'm I'm OK. I'm going to say a Blackhawks fan. You, you know, you're half right. I mean, okay. I'm a Blackhawks fan now for sure. Growing up, I was very much um, a New York Rangers fan, which is okay. weird because I'm from the east end of Long Island and everybody was an Islanders fan. Um, and then, uh, you know, so the Rangers were always my team and the Rangers winning the Stanley Cup in 1994 is, is the ultimate sports uh, fan experience I ever had. I was very close with some of the players and I was right in the, you know, in the midst of it as a very close bystander. So that was really a great experience. But since I moved here, and also because of the cutting edge, you know, I wear Bobby Hull's jersey in the cutting edge. And so I got to know Bobby and Brett Hull many years ago. And, uh, and now living in the Chicago area, you know, the Blackhawks is really one of the great sports entertainment products. I mean, if you've ever been to a, if you've never been to a game there, the Star Spangled Banner at the Blackhawks game is the best Star Spangled Banner in sports right now. Um, uh, there's a guy named Jim Cornelison who's a, he's like a, a baritone opera trained singer who just, does such an incredible job with it. They bring out veterans from, I don't know how they keep finding World War II veterans to this day, but they do. They'll have a World War II veteran, a Korea veteran, and a Vietnam veteran, or a War on Terror veteran, or a more modern conflict veteran. And they just do the Star Spangled Banner in a way that if you don't get goosebumps, you don't have a pulse. Yeah. And, and that alone is like such a great moment. And then, you know, the, the Blackhawks have a great team. Uh, Patrick Kane is one of those guys you know, he's a generational player and, and Jonathan Taves is a very unique character. One of the great leaders in sports. And it's just, they've had great success, obviously three Stanley cups over the last 10, 12 years, whatever it is. And, but the organization just gets it in a way that some organizations in sports get it. And uh, so I really, I really am a Blackhawks fan. I do enjoy what they do. Yeah. And I, I mean, and I, I totally hear you too, with, you know, how you mentioned you were from a different part from where you were in New York to, to be a Rangers fan over an Islanders fan. I, I totally get that. I am, I, I live right outside of Philadelphia, so you would think I'd be a Flyers fan. And I am because they're the hometown team. But because I grew up in New Jersey, I'm a Devils fan. I'm Devils fan through and through. Ah. So, you know, you know, Devils and Rangers kind of have a little bit of a rivalry as well. But... Oh, yeah. We we either we would either lose to the Devils or the Islanders in the conference finals every year. So that was, you know, it was just <laughs> choose your poison. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of how it was, too, with, uh, you know, I, I kind of – tease a lot of my friends who are Flyers fans because, uh, you know, the Devils for a long time were the Flyers kryptonite. They just could not beat them in the playoffs because uh, right. the Devils always had that trap defense and it was like just couldn't get around it. And I was happy. Yeah. Marty Brodeur. Exactly. Marty Hall, Brodeur. Hall of Famer, man. I keep, love him. Keep them to less, less than 25 shots a game and we'll win. Yeah. That was their whole strategy. <laughs> exactly. Lou Lamarillo. Um. I can tell you, too, that, you know, when you look at your resume, Eight Men Out is another fantastic movie. But I got to say one movie that I was about 13 or 40. I'm 40 years old now. So um, and our birthdays are only two days apart, by the way. I'm on November 16th. I know you're a 14th. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But, you know, at at 40 years old, I was about 13 or 14 when I first saw Fire in the Sky. And let me tell you, that movie scared the shit out of me at 13, 14 yeah. years old. I, I love Fire in the Sky. Fire in the Sky is a movie that I think was just, it just missed where, you know, having the elements that it needed to be a massive, massive hit. And some of that is, you know, I think they just made a couple of mistakes, in, in my opinion. The first mistake was in the script to have James Garner, you know, the audience sees in the beginning of the movie that, I, that my character Travis is abducted by aliens. 
So the audience is already like, all right, this happened. And then they spend about 45 minutes with James Garner investigating the story and doubting it. And the audience already knows it happened. So it creates this weird energy, I think, for the audience where it's like, wait, we love James Garner. He's never wrong. Why is he being wrong? And it's just confusing. <laughs> yeah. So I think if, they, if there had been a little bit more doubt in the beginning, where, in other words, it's not a fact to the audience that it happened. It's just our story that it happened. And then if the, story, if the movie had revealed, yes, it, and not only did it happen, but here, look what happened on the spaceship. Then I think it would have been a massive, massive hit instead of like what it is now, like a cult classic type movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was one of those movies that, you know, I, like I mentioned, I grew up in New Jersey and, you know, like the country parts of New Jersey. So, you know, after seeing that movie, it scared the hell out of me to drive home from somebody's house with my parents and just constantly looking out the window for lights in the sky. Uh, you know, so yeah, it was, it was it's, a, it's a primordial fear. Yeah. A lot of people have that fear. And, and uh, you know, so many people have, have reported being abducted. It's crazy. I remember I was doing research around the time we made the movie. And something like two to three percent of the American population had felt that they had encountered or seen a UFO. And so that's tens of millions of people. And I thought, wow, this is crazy. Either it taps into some part of our psyche or it's really happening. And either one of those is interesting. So, uh, I, you know, last night I popped in with I mentioned I have a 16 year old daughter and, and I've been trying to use this time to to introduce her to some of the movies that I love. And, you know, not movies that I was in necessarily because I've never done that with my kids almost to the point now where they're like, oh, yeah, we don't want to see one of your shows, something else. <laughs> so, um, so last night we did The Matrix. And The Matrix is, is uh, the director of photography of that movie is Bill Pope. And I've forgotten how much of The Matrix, the sequence where Neo is born, in a sense. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's very similar to Fire in the Sky. And it's, you can see the inspiration from Fire in the Sky. And obviously Bill Pope, you know, he's the same guy that shot it. So he had all the cheat sheet on, on Fire in the Sky. But anyway, you know, that's another movie I'm very proud of. Robert Patrick's terrific in it. Yeah, you're right, too. I never put that comparison together with The Matrix and Fire in the Sky, but that is a really great comparison between the with the cinematography and the way that it's shot. So, yeah, it's uh, it owes a lot. Um, I know another popular role from, you know, when I posted that I was talking to you this episode, uh, you know, another pop another thing that popped up is, you know, you've kind of made the transition into voiceover, too. I think you, you started with Dinosaur for Disney. Was that your first voiceover? Yeah, that was that was my first. Well, I'd done some commercial voiceovers, uh, but that was my first character voiceover, and and what a great experience that was. I mean, that went on for years. That that movie, I don't know if they've ever really admitted how much money they spent on that, but um, Kiefer Sutherland did the voice of the main character, and he was on it for like two years, and he got tired of being on the. You know, the, can we get to the end of this thing? And yeah. so they 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 brought in uh, another actor. I can't remember his name to play the main. Um, uh, the mean dinosaur crone, I guess the dinosaur was, and I can't remember the actor's name that they brought in, but Kiefer was crone for a while. And then, but I think I was on that thing for like five years. They, they, they kept, they were trying to figure out how to, how to do this new technology and animation where you could make, I guess the hair on the lemurs was the big challenge. And Disney spent hundreds of millions of dollars on this thing. I'm not even exaggerating. They admit to spending, I think $200 million on this movie. And, but it was a lot more because when the movie came out, it made, like $200 million US and they weren't bragging about it yet because I think they still were behind the eight ball financially. <laughs> yeah. They were still in so the red a little it, bit I, with the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So I think later on uh, movies like t Avatar was a more expensive movie, but until then I think Dinosaur was one of the most expensive movies ever made. And the great irony is that I had 22 voiceover sessions at, which is a ton. Usually you can do a movie in three or four, but they kept rewriting it and redoing it. 
And so I think I made, I made like 3000 a session, which is great money. I mean, a session might be 30 minutes sometime, maybe an hour or two hours, four hours. So I give me three grand. So I made 66 grand on a movie that probably cost $300 million. I'm the main character. So that's why you probably ought to buy Disney stock. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and then you, you returned to Disney to do more voiceover too with, I think it was Brother Bear, right? Yeah, Brother Bear. Another great experience. That was a lot of fun. My role got trimmed out in that movie. I had a, a much longer arc. Like my character dies early in the movie and then he becomes this spiritual presence who appears during the rest of the movie, but they cut that plot out. Um, so I spent a lot of time on Brother Bear too. And I love doing animated movies. I mean, it's really... Um, it's been one of the most fun jobs I've ever had. And my, actually my bucket list dream in Hollywood is to voice a Pixar character because they've just taken it to a new level with the writing on their movies and the animation and the wit and the way that they make it work on a level of like for the parents. And, and there's like inside jokes for the parents that don't make the kids feel weird. And then there's jokes for the kids that make the parents feel like kids. Again. I mean, it's just, it, it's, I really think it's genius. Like they have, I'd say over the last 20 years, Five of my favorite 20 movies are Pixar movies. Have you, uh, I got to ask, have you seen the, the latest one, Onward? I haven't seen that one, no. No, I, I I haven't been to a movie theater like any of us, but but even before that, I guess, the last movie I saw in a movie theater was Midway or 1917. Those were two great movies, but no, I would, I, I usually had a tradition of going to see, you know, with one or both of my kids when a new Pixar movie came out, it was just a big deal. We'd go to the theater and get all the crap and, you know, just watch it, sometimes watch it twice the first day. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's still something today about a, a theater experience. And, you know, as we talked about it a little bit more, I hope that I hope there's still an opportunity for that, uh, you know, in the future after all this is kind of, you know, shaken off yeah. a little bit. Yeah, I think that I think my prediction on the theater business, what's going to happen is that it's going to become like an airline pricing model. In other words, if you want to go to the theater on Friday night at eight o'clock, you're going to have to pay 40 bucks. Um, because they're only going to sell 60 seats in that 300 seat theater because they're going to spread everybody out. So, but if you want to go on Tuesday morning at 11, it's six dollars. Yeah. So they're gonna they're gonna encourage people to go at all different times, and there'll be a pricing model. But theaters are definitely in a big big trouble, especially live theater, which is my passion is uh, acting in plays. Uh, you know, when I can, I haven't done it in the last four or five years because you know, kids, a lot of good excuses, but anyway, I just haven't done it lately, but I want to get back to it. And that's going to be the problem because that's going to be a bigger problem post uh, uh, COVID because um, most of the audience for theater tends to be older, like over the age of 60, maybe even over the age of 65. So those people are going to be less uh, uh, keen to be packed in with other people of that age, especially because people cough in the theater Mm -hmm. and somebody coughing in the as an actor, when somebody coughs in the theater, pre-virus that's like that means oh, okay the play's boring or you suck or talk faster or talk louder it's like a message from the, from audience members that they're not happy that you know it's got to get better that's usually what you can interpret from that but now i think the cough among the audience is going to be like oh shit is this the play where i catch a, a deadly illness <laughs> yeah you know so yeah. you know i think that's a bad dynamic for keeping their attention yeah but, you know, again, you know, we'll see how things hopefully we'll see what happens. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I, I there's two other things on my list I want to make sure I get to before we wrap things up. Uh, one of my still to this day, it's a show that is so underrated and I'm so disappointed it ended as quickly as it did. But I'm thankful that it got an ending is Jericho. Uh, it, it was such a clever show in the story that it was telling. And, you know, it. It was one of those things that you saw the massive audience uh, response when the show got canceled 
with a cliffhanger ending and we weren't going to get that ending until they decided to bring it back. And it, it's funny because I have I've had a number of people who commented saying how much they loved your character in Cutting Edge but hated your character in Jericho. Yeah, I, I love Jericho. I thought it was really, really a cool show. And, and that's actually one that uh, I've been hearing anecdotally that a lot of people are checking it out now during this, this uh, quarantine because it, there's some, you know, parallels and resonances, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Skeet Ulrich was really good. And there were a lot of other really good uh, actors and performances in there. And the scripts were interesting. And I, I think everybody could relate to it, you know, and um, these survival type shows are really uh, appealing, especially in this binge era. So, I, yeah, I think it's too bad that CBS, you know, it's another show that might have been ahead of its time a little bit because that thing could run right now. I mean, I think people would, would, would clamor to watch the, those characters in that situation. And I love my character, Getz. I just thought, what an interesting combination of elements and that, you know, that kind of person would, would really prosper in a time where people are desperate and where, um, you know, authoritarian forces would be uh, hard to resist, you know, that you have to form a militia against people like that. And it's just all the issues that that character raises. Um, so I really, really enjoyed it. And I thought they made a massive mistake by killing him off. I thought, you know, you want to keep, if you have a good villain, keep him alive. Just yeah. like, you know, chase the, chase the dragon back over the mountain. And now the dragon's wounded or whatever. And then, but maybe someday he'll come back and torment you again. So I thought they made a mistake there, but you know they made a lot of mistakes with that show. Otherwise, it would have ran for six years. Yeah, I, and I agree with you with the villain thing. It, it was a little bit of a disappointment to see the character written off, especially you know the dynamic that he had with the other characters. It, you could have kept that going for a long time. And yeah, you know, they, just, they just beat him, beat him up, and have him crawl back, have him crawl back, bloody and bruised. That would have been fun. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I I absolutely want to wrap things up with two dumb mix, but before I do that, um, are there any projects kind of like on your resume, whether they be television or film or anything like that, that you kind of look at and you feel like more people, you wished more people, it got it got more attention than it did. Well, yeah, there's there's two TV series I did that I feel like really did not get a fair shake, and one and uh, one of them was my fault. Strange luck to a certain extent was it was my first TV experience, and uh, I didn't I wasn't surrounded with the right people, and I didn't insist on being surrounded by the right people. But it was a great idea, and we had great. And I'm not talking about the cast; I'm talking about some of the writing and the producing and stuff. That those people were not the right match for me. So we did 17 episodes of Strange Luck, and it was the the lead-in show to X Files when X Files was just blowing up, and the show actually in hindsight was very successful, but Fox didn't get behind it. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Brandon Park, Brandon Tartikoff was one of the executives on the show. He had a production company called new world and new world was being bought by, uh, by Fox. So when, so Fox, if, if strange luck became a hit on the Fox network, uh, you know, just paradoxically Fox would end up having to pay more money to buy new world. So they sort of had a, they, they didn't really want it to work. So it just was kind of interesting. And then and it's never been released on DVD or in any other platform, which I find extremely weird because the shows are really good. We have some really good guest stars. And uh, so I don't get that one. And I love my character, Francis Fisher's in it. And, um, you know, there's some references to X-Files, potential crossover future episodes and stuff that never happened, obviously, but mm -hmm. uh, that shows a big disappointment. And then um, I did another show called Harsh Realm with Chris Carter, which was right around the time 1999. And, and it was very, it had some similar themes to the matrix and we were being filmed at the same time they were being filmed. But when they came out, it was sort of felt like, I think, you know, our, our show was ripping it off, which was ridiculous because we were filming at the same time. 
and uh, Samantha Mathis is in that show, Terry O'Quinn. Uh, I met my friend Max Martini on that show, who I have a movie coming out with him called uh, Manson Brothers Midnight Zombie Massacre, which is a funny zombie comedy. But anyway, it was it's a really terrific show. We only did about 10 episodes of that show, and Fox didn't know what to do with that one either. So I didn't have good luck with uh, those two series on Fox, which I felt both, either one of them could have been a huge hit. Yeah, I, I remember Harsh Realm, actually, as a matter of fact. I mean, and Fox is notorious for... I guess not really finding a proper place for shows like that. I mean, you look at shows like Firefly and things like that, that, you know, find a, a big afterlife once they've, you know, Fox has kind of done their way with them. Um, you know, and it, it's kind of a shame that, you know, none of, some of these shows didn't find that same audience after Fox kind of, you know, kind of chucked them to the curb a little bit. Yeah, they were, it was, I think later on, it might, either show would have been picked up by somebody else. But at that time, Fox had this weird thing where they were only, they didn't have three hours of prime time. They had two hours. They had the eight o'clock hour and the nine o'clock hour. And so that 10 o'clock hour would be local news. So that means there's only really uh, seven days times two slots, 14 shows on Fox. And then they had Fox baseball and Fox football. So there really were only show, spots for like seven shows on Fox. And they would preempt these shows to do sports. So you get promoted during the sports event. But the fact of the matter is, it was not a priority. Their, their priority was always sports. And so they, you know, these shows would get bumped and the audience would never get a chance to build. And anyway, it was, it was a, a model that they've since, I think, abandoned. But nonetheless, it, I, I, got, I came to Fox at the wrong time. Yeah. Um, so uh, to, to wrap things up with the conversation before I let you go, I absolutely want to talk about Two Dumb Mix because this is a short that you worked on with Sean Astin. It, you know, it kind of swept the film, you know, the the, uh, the film festival circuit with over 50, you know, with like 50 awards at, in the circuits. And it's for something that's only a little over four minutes long. Man, the belly laughs that come out that came out of me while watching it were fantastic. Um, was this was this something that you wrote or was this something that you just you helped to to create or in what ways did you help to create this? Well, I, I, did, I wrote it. I produced it. I financed it. Um, I called up my friend, Sean, who I, we did Memphis Bell together almost 30 years ago. And he's always been one of my favorite people as a person and as an actor. Like I loved Rudy is a movie that I watch once a year. I, I love, you know, Bernie's is a great movie. Sean's good in everything he does. He did in Lord of the Rings. Like I was not really a big fan of the whole series, except when he was in it, I felt like he brought so much heart and he just, he just, he, you care about his character and everything he's in. And he's such a good guy, and I always had hoped that we would work together sometime again over the years, and it just never, it never happened, just because you know we're actors, we kind of we're relying on other people hiring us usually. So recently, I've started creating my own stuff. You know, I mentioned Two Tickets to Paradise earlier, which I wrote and produced, and uh, and so Two Dumb Mix is a smaller version of that, where I specifically wanted to work with, I wanted to do comedy, I wanted to work with Sean, and I thought let's just make an episode and see if people respond to it. And then I put it in the film festivals as, as sort of a, a low-budget market research just to see, you know, I'd go to some of the film festivals and, and see the movie with an audience and figure out where I had it right and where I had it wrong. And I didn't really anticipate it just becoming this awards magnet, which is great. You know, I mean, it's they don't really mean everything. I mean, there's a lot of movies that should win awards that don't and vice versa. But, it, you know, when you win a lot of them, you start to think, well, a lot of different kinds of audiences like this movie. So. Yeah. Um, so now because of, again, I'm sorry to beat a dead drum, but, no, um, <laughs> the, because of the virus, because of the virus, I felt like it's a good time to put it out because people are running out of shows to watch. The original plan was to make nine or 10 of these as a block 
and then release them all at once, like once a week, you know, kind of the Quibi model or somebody mm -hmm. and, and that somebody would, would be a platform for them. But then, and we haven't been able to get that together yet. So I just thought, well, let's just send it out there and see if people respond to it. And it's been available on facebook.com slash two dumb mix with no B for only two weeks. And we've already had 335,000 views. And so it's really, I don't know if you want to say it's viral yet, but it's certainly on its way to feeling like it's a viral thing. So I think odds are you're going to see more of these episodes that Sean and I are going to get together and uh, figure out a way to make some more and, or you know, maybe have a bigger partner. And, and uh, you know, people love to laugh and people love these two characters. They're sort of, they can't get out of their own way. My character's a little bit more conniving and Sean's just got a big heart. So I think that's kind of a good classic comic uh, tension that, that we're going to be able to mine over and over again. Yeah, it's it's kind of like, I kind of put it in comparison to a little bit of Abbott and Costello. I mean, you know, they're, they're two guys that, like you said, one's conniving, one's got a lot of heart, and they, I absolutely see that in the two characters. And that's I think that's what made it so much fun to watch. And there's these, these little nuances that are within the film. I mean, the one thing that made me laugh, I think, more than anything else, and it's not touched upon, it's not pointed out at all, it's just something that if you know it, you know it, and it's funny, is the fact that the bag that the 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 feed is in is a crown royal bag yeah yeah that was i i'm really glad just something i thought of kind of at the last minute and i'm so glad that i did it because it's such a distinctive item and yeah I, yeah and it's so we're gonna try and you know i i feel like i've been so blessed that audiences have continued to allow me to make a living at this for i'm in my fourth decade now and i feel like there's a lot of people like you that would notice these little things and so whether i'm on like a big movie like captive state or a big show like two uh, you know, two and a half men. I, I feel like I, I want to put the, the maximum effort in every day because even on maybe a low budget movie that doesn't really have a chance of working, somebody's going to be watching it in the middle of the night and somebody might see this one little nuance that you put in there or this, you know, so anyway, I, I'm just happy that I'm able to continue to do this work and, uh, you know, on all different kinds of projects and I love it. And I just love the fact that there's an audience that, that appreciates it. Yeah. So what, what kind of projects can we look to, can we look to see you as a, a part of in the future, whether it be film, television, stage, anything like that? The two, the, the two big things I'm working on right now is uh, my, two of my passions. I, I did Lonesome Dove with Robert Duvall and Tommy Lee Jones. Great experience in my life. I've always wanted to do another Western, so I wrote one. And we're hoping to get that going soon. It's called Horsehead Crossing, and I have a lot of really great actors who have already agreed to be a part of it. But that's down the line, uh, you know, that's still got some things that have to fall into place. I got to find these two young actors to play the main characters. It's about two young cowboys. So uh, it's, you know, it, it can't be anybody that you already know. It's got to be somebody I had to discover. So that's a bit of a challenge, but, you know, I'm going to find those guys at some point. And then the other thing is uh, one of my lifelong passions is cooking. And uh, I started out cooking in restaurants when I was 13 years old on Long Island, which is a whole nother long story, but it's, it's true. And I, I learned how to cook on the job. And as soon as I learned how to cook everything in each restaurant I worked in, I would just resign and I'd go apply at another restaurant and I'd learn everything they could do. So by the time I was in college, I had cooked in over 20 restaurants and I just had discovered my own style of doing things. And so anyway, I, I, I love doing it. I cook for my friends and, you know, I've had people say on more than one occasion, you know, I don't know why this, I don't know why you don't have your own cooking show. And, and, you know, it's not like a hoity toity cooking show where I act like I'm a chef. It's more like, it's fun to hang out with your friends and make good food. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know what form that's going to take, whether it's going to be like a, you know, a regular TV show or whether it's going to be on the internet or, you know, so everything's changing so fast that, but I do know that I'm going to do that 
that genre, which I've never done like a reality type genre, but I'm going to do that one. That's cool. I, I would be, cause I'm a big, I, I want to use the word foodie loosely because I'm still picky about some of the things that I eat, but I love trying new things when I get the opportunity. So I would absolutely watch something like that as well as new episodes of two dumb mix. I mean, you, there's always, you know, YouTube is always a great platform. If you can't find anything else, at least just to get the content out there and, you know, in hopes that it becomes something bigger. Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, that's where I'm at right now. I've got some partners that are interested in helping support me, and I'm, you know, I'm going to try and, you know, both of these things they uh, they're viable already. Like Two Dumb Mix is kind of a minor hit already in the first two weeks on on, on the internet, and so that's going to end up somewhere. And then this cooking idea is a little bit further out there, but but you know, I I love doing it, and and I'm going to continue to do movies and TV shows, all the conventional platforms and things that come my way when I'm interested by them. And but I think it's we're in a wonderful world where you don't need you know, you can do your own TV show and I have, you know, kind of a brand name identity now. So I don't need the, you know, as many people to prop me up and get me out there. It's just sort of like an open portal now. So I'm going to try and tap into some of that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there, there's a ton of other projects that you've done that we could talk about, but I want to save some of them because I want to hope, uh, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed that you're going to come back on at some point in the future. I'd love to. Yeah. It's been great talking to you. And, uh, you know, I appreciate you helping me get the word out on the two dumb mix and, you know, so I'd love to talk again. I mean, Manson Brothers Midnight Zombie Massacre is a, is a funny story, and uh, uh, I got a great, great character in that. Randy Couture is in, and a bunch of other people. Maybe you know that's going to come out. I think uh, within the next several months, so maybe we could reconvene. Yeah, let's absolutely do that because I'm a big zombie nut too. So um, that'll be something that'll be a lot of fun to talk about, and you know, we we maybe we'll touch on some of your other projects, that, you know, like Eight Men Out and things like that. But we'll talk about the uh, um, Manson Brothers Midnight Zombie Massacre too as well. Um, beautiful uh but yeah so i you know db thank you so much for joining me for this and i want to get the word out obviously even more about two dumb mix as you mentioned facebook.com slash two dumb mix dumb without the b uh and i think two dumb mix.com as well same thing dumb without the b is where you can find a lot more information uh on the video there so yeah, and coming soon, dbsweeney.com. It'll be a lot more material there. That's kind of a that's been a kind of a dead website for a while, but I promise if anybody gets if they wander over there, it'll get better soon. Cool. Uh, are you on social media at all? It's like like Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, yeah, I am. I'm, I'm kind of you know trying to figure that out as well. But I'm a real DB Sweeney, no dots, just real DB Sweeney on on uh, Twitter and and Instagram, and then uh, Facebook actor and director DB Sweeney. Cool. Uh, but yeah, thank you again so much. This I, I had a feeling this was going to be a lot of fun, and it didn't disappoint at all. It was a blast talking to you. Uh, thanks so much. I really enjoyed the visit. Yeah. Uh, but until we get you on next time, uh, thank you everybody for listening, and until the next episode of The Spotlight, we'll see you around the bend.